to our Good Friday service. Thank you for joining us this morning or evening or wherever you are, whatever time zone you might be watching in, whether you connected through Facebook or YouTube or our website or Instagram or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're hearing this, however you are being part of the service and wherever you are, welcome to you. God connects us together. We are joined together not only by the multimedia of this broadcast, but by what we gather for here today, Good Friday, remembering the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life because he loved us that much, revealing the love of the Father, revealing, uh, revealing what it is, what true love is, leading ultimately to the sacrifice of his life in order that we could have uh, an everlasting relationship with Him. We celebrated Palm Sunday last week. I hope that you were able to join us uh, last night for our Tenebrae service. If not, please pick it up on the website, on our Facebook or Instagram uh, feed. It is, uh, it's all up there for you to have a look at. Today, as I say, is Good Friday, to, uh, and on Easter Sunday at half past nine, we will live stream again the most special time for us as Christians this Holy Week. It is what distinguishes us and separates us from so many other religions, many who believe Jesus was a wonderful man, even a, even a great prophet. But it is this Easter week where we understand that he wasn't just a wonderful man, not just a great prophet, but our Lord and Savior, God eternal, resurrected from the dead. It's a most special time for us, but it was a crisis for Jesus, the biggest crisis of his life. He was moving into a space that definitely wasn't pretty. It was hostile. It was angry. He was going to something where he knew what awaited him. And we're going to look this morning at how he went through that crisis and what that has to say to us today. So as I said, we're connected by multimedia, but more importantly, we are connected by the cross of Christ. And I welcome you to this time of reflection on this important day for all Christians. Let us open with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, in the solemnness of a Good Friday, where we are isolated and alone in our homes where we have been separated one from another. It is a fitting reminder of the isolation that you felt, of the darkness that engulfed you, of the death that overtook you. We're reminded, Lord, that you suffered greatly for, uh, for each of us, that you gave your life as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, you gave your life to demonstrate your love for us. As you reveal the, the nature of the Father, the, the greatest revelation of, of who God is, we see a God of love who reaches out his arms and says, my love is so great that it leads to this moment where I give everything for you. I sacrifice all that you may be with me. And today, Lord, as we remember that sacrifice, we rejoice in that love. And as we reflect on how you went in through that crisis, Jesus Christ, we pray and ask that it may speak to us, that we would find ourselves connected to you in crisis, encouraged by your victory at the cross, and that even though we remember a solemn day, we know that our spirits can be lifted because we know what comes on Friday. And so, Holy Spirit, minister to us this morning, we pray. Speak into our hearts. In the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and resurrected Savior. Amen. Our readings this morning, uh, it's a fairly lengthy reading. But I want to read uh, the passages of Scripture that will give us a full picture of uh, the story of the crucifixion. And so I'm reading from Luke chapter 22, from verse 39 to 71. 
If you'd like to find that in your Bibles or on, uh, on your electronic devices, if you have got a Bible app, Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 71, and then carrying on in chapter 23, verses 32 to 47. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who called, was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I do not know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had, that had been spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who is it that hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I tell you, you would not answer. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of Almighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And then from chapter 23, verse 32 to 47. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, 
He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, it is sobering to hear the whole account of the crucifixion. And as we piece it together with other details that we know from the Gospels of the, uh, the other writers, we are reminded of the horror, of the pain, and of the crisis that you felt. We're reminded too of the grace that led you to that place and the beauty of the Holy Spirit that you leave with us today. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, minister to us, that you would take the words that are spoken and that each of us in whatever place we are listening to this broadcast will hear only the words you want us to hear. May we hear only the voice of God speaking to us. May our spirits connect with your spirit. As we know, Lord God, that you are speaking into our lives and leading us to greater faithfulness. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. We long to listen to you. Come and minister to us. Amen. It has been very interesting to see how people have reacted to the situation that the world faces right now. I was, I was recording a podcast the other day with uh, my best friend, a colleague from South Africa, now ministering in Ireland. And we were discussing things that we had noticed about the world in this unprecedented time of COVID-19. And I said to him that it's amazing to see how it has brought out both the very best in people, but also the very worst in people. In my own family, sometimes it can bring out the very best and the very worst in us in the same hour. And I don't think that we're a unique family. If you're part of a family where there's five adults, three of whom are teenagers, locked together in a confined space for an as-yet-to-be-determined amount of days, you can't even now go for a drive anymore, let me tell you, we have had our moments, as have you, I'm sure. Let's just say that I am now the proud owner of five different Disney Plus profiles Best $8 I have ever spent in my life. But jokes aside, of course there's the odd disagreement. But I've been incredibly proud of our kids. The things that they have done and thought of to help the elderly and, and others who are vulnerable, 
ways that they have helped out with our Easter program services, some of which you heard last night and some of which you're going to see on Sunday and, and some of which you will, you will never know because it's things done for others. It's been wonderful to see that response from them and, and some of their kindness. And that's what I mean. Our family is by no means unique. The time has brought out the best in people, the kindness, the care, the compassion, the sacrifice. But sadly, it's also brought out the very worst in people. And I'm not talking about a little family disagreement over Disney Plus or Netflix. I'm talking about the absolute worst. The selfishness, the hoarding, the racism towards Chinese people, the abuse of medical workers, even to the point where, where infected people have been spitting on nurses and doctors to try and infect them. It has brought out the very worst in people. And I've looked at my kids as we watch all of this unfold. And I've wondered about how they will describe this time to their children one day. When they come home, when their children come home from history class and they say, Mom, you're an old person. Can you remember the great coronavirus pandemic of 2020? Much the same way my kids have said to me, Dad, you're an old person. Can you remember the planes crashing into the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001? And I've wondered to myself, how will they tell the story of this pandemic, of this crisis? And that's the word that I've settled on. I think that's the word that they will use, crisis. It's a crisis like we have never seen, my child. A health crisis, an economic crisis. It was crazy times. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything. Grandpa even bought us all Disney+. Plus. The world was in crisis, and it all happened at Easter. Smack bang in the middle of the craziness, in the middle of the crisis was Easter. Easter in the time of crisis. That's what our theme has been over the last few weeks. Over the last three weeks, we've looked at what God is saying to us in the crisis. Be still and know that I am God. We've looked at what we need to do in time of crisis. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. On Palm Sunday, we looked at the nature of a Savior who comes riding into Jerusalem as the people needed Him. But what that nature of the Savior means for us is different to how they saw it. When I sat down to plan my Easter program in January, Friends, I can tell you, this wasn't the Easter program that I had planned. But as we progressed in this crisis, every week things got worse and worse and worse and restrictions became more and more and infections and deaths went up and up and, and still are. We're still in crisis and we still need to know where God is and we still need to know what God says in these moments. Easter in the time of crisis. And then it struck me. That in the ancient world, Easter was their crisis. Their grandchildren would have been saying to them, Do you remember the Passover when they killed that man, Jesus? This was the crisis. Especially for Jesus, who, as we saw last week, would have experienced the best and the worst of people. He would have experienced the best in allegiances pledged to him. And then the worst in denials that were given. He would have experienced the best in, in friends, in face-to-face -face interactions, but the worst in the betrayers meeting behind his back. He would have experienced the best in the crowds shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the worst of the same crowd shouted, Crucify, Crucify. He would have experienced the best in the love of his, of his mother and the woman who, who cared enough, who loved him enough that he not die alone on the cross and they stayed there and, and were with him. And then he would have experienced the worst in those who whipped and spat and tormented and those that ran away. 
Easter in the time of crisis. Easter was the crisis, the greatest crisis, as the Son of God willingly goes to the cross, surrendering to the, to the evil forces so that that evil can do its absolute worst. What a crisis that was. And as Jesus gets closer and closer to the moment of the cross, his crisis grows and looks more and more like the crisis is going to win. But as Jesus faces that crisis, we see a number of things that we can look at and learn from in a way that, in the way that he handles the crisis. There are a number of characteristics and qualities that we see in Christ in the midst of crisis that are so applicable to us in crisis today. And it's interesting that this is the only time we see Jesus in crisis like this. At almost every other point in the Gospels where there is danger, you have the feeling Jesus is going to handle this. The disciples too had learned that. Whether they were facing storms on the boat or, uh, or whether Jesus was facing traps set by authorities or tricky questions that were being asked of him, you have the sense that he, he's got this. But this time is different. This is crisis of a different magnitude. This time Jesus was in trouble and it looked very bleak. But as he faces this crisis head on, the first thing that we notice is that Jesus seeks a connectedness with God. He seeks a connectedness with God. Throughout his ministry, we see this need for connectedness as Jesus takes time out to pray at various points. When John the Baptist has been killed, Jesus moves off on his own. He wants to get alone to be in prayer. He withdraws in difficult times to spend time praying and, and just earnestly and honestly connecting with God. But we never see it as clearly as we do in this reading in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus even gets the disciples to stand watch. He knows what's about to happen. But he knows, too, that he is not going to get through without that connectedness. The disciples fall asleep, but it doesn't change the fact that we are witness to the most honest and earnest prayer of Jesus' life. A prayer where the anguish yields sweat falling like drops of blood. And he says, Father, if you are willing, can you please take this cup from me? If you're willing, let it let this not happen. I find the honesty of that prayer so amazing. You can imagine the openness, the, the raw emotion with which he's praying. Richard Raw uh, says this. He says, In the time of crisis, we must commit to a posture of prayer and a heart that opens, opens us to deep trust and connection with God. Only then can we hold the reality of what is happening? Open our hearts to a posture of prayer and a deep connection with God. Only then can we hold the reality of what is happening. Throughout this theme, we've spoken of the need to connect with God and the opportunity that's given for that. But Jesus in the midst of crisis shows us something more about this connectedness. We see how essential Honesty, openness, emotion. How essential that is to the connectedness, to facing the crisis and to getting through. And if Jesus sought that connectedness, how much more for you and me? But even that's not new. What is shown in the garden that night is the emotion and openness of a Christ who pours out his heart such as we've never seen, who longs to be rooted and steadfastly bound to the Father as that connection is formed in the depths of the reality of what's happening, in the heartfeltness of the, the emotions that are spoken. How often do your and my prayers only scratch the superficial?
How often do our prayers only speak to God of our needs? How often are our prayers kept safe where we only really give God access to those things that, that we feel safe to tell Him, those things that we're, we're maybe comfortable with Him knowing and maybe not wanting Him to change? How often do our prayers gloss over our real fears? And the things that we know deep down need to change. But in reality, we just don't want him to touch that. Jesus, who is in the midst of, of crisis, speaks of a connectedness that is real and open, which ultimately leads to a place where he is so in tune with God, even at peace in the crisis, that he can say, but actually, God, not my will, but yours be done. Not mine, but yours. He walks into this deepening crisis, having already found that connectedness in the garden. A connectedness that will hold him through the crisis he faces. I always tell couples in marriage preparation that there are different levels of intimacy in the conversations that we have with our partners. Level five would be the most basic and, and superficial form of communication. Hey, did you leave the oven on when we left the house this morning? That's a kind of level five uh, communication. Nothing too intimate, nothing too important in that statement at all. But as you work your way down the levels, you get to level one, which is the most deep, intimate, and honest conversation where the hopes and the dreams and the ideas and the fears and the love for one another are expressed in this beautiful connectedness with the soulmate. You can't have a level one conversation. Sometimes when the oven's on, it needs to be a level five. But equally so, if you're never having a level one conversation, if there's never a, a date night and a time away from kids where you can, where you can get to that level one and that, that level of intimacy, if you never have a moment where you are really just talking about the, the depths of who you are, then you're always selling your relationship short of what it could be. This applies in our connectedness to spouses, but it applies the same way in our connectedness to God. In the midst of crisis, we need to seek a connectedness with Him that is not just a quick popcorn prayer shooting off ones here and there, but, but a deep, intimate moment. As Richard Raw says, a posture of prayer. The way we exist, the way we stand, the posture of prayer. Listen to this quote by Francois Frenelin, where he says about prayer, Tell God all that is in your heart. As one unloads one heart, one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him about your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him about your joys, that he may celebrate them. Tell him about your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him about your dislikes, that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your taste for evil, your instability. Tell him how selfishness makes you unjust to others, or how vanity tempts you to be insincere, and how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. Because if you pour out all your joys and weaknesses and needs and troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. People who have no secrets from each other never want for a subject for conversation. They do not weigh their words, for there is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek something to say. They talk out of the abundance of the heart. Without consideration, they say what they think. Blessed are those who attain to such familiar, unreserved connectedness with God. Jesus finds that connectedness in crisis. Secondly, in the midst of crisis of the crucifixion, Jesus chooses to be calm. 
the whole response of Christ is almost like a, a flowchart because out of the connectedness, he's able to respond with a sense of calm that defies belief. I mean, like I said, this crisis brings out the best and the worst in people. I saw a joke the other day that said, I used to spin the toilet roll like it was the wheel of fortune. Now I spin it more like I'm trying to carefully crack open the combination of a safe. Such has been the craziness of the toilet paper shopping here. I don't need to tell you about the other irrational behavior that we have seen, the lack of calm that has been exhibited. And I think it's because for many of us, we've never had to worry about something this big before. Certainly, there have been cyclones and floods and, uh, and hurricanes and fires, but they always only impact part of the community, and the rest of the world or the rest of the country continues to function, and other communities are able to help out, and there's this great sense of an, of an Aussie spirit, which is, which is really who we are. We help one another out. But this is different, because everyone is affected at the same time. Everybody is in danger and there's this temptation to panic. I mean, if we all get sick, who's going to help? Who's going to deliver the goods? And so there's a temptation in the midst of crisis like this to panic. The disciples did exactly that. Panic from irrational behavior in the Garden of Gethsemane to the abandonment of Jesus at the cross to Peter denying Christ in front of that fireplace three times. But in the midst of all of that crisis, in the midst of the panic that's going on for them, Jesus is calm. Calm as anything. The soldiers arrest him. Peter cuts off the ear of the, of the servant. And it must have been tempting for Jesus to run. I reckon that he could have made a break for it in that moment. He probably could have stood a good chance of, of getting away or, or hiding in the dark. But he remains calm. Before Pilate, they lie about him. They accuse him. They wanted a convicted murderer released instead of him. He says nothing. No anger, no panic, no lashing out, no fighting back with real evidence, no calling of witnesses, just calm. On the cross, the soldier um, mocks and taunts him, as does the thief who is hanging there next to him. And Jesus remains calm. Even in pain and with death right there, he remains calm. One wonders if that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, I wonder if God didn't say to Jesus, be still and know that I am God. I think that in the world today, we have one crisis that is actually feeding another crisis. There's this crisis of faith because there are so many people the world over who have decided long ago that, that there is no need for God. That there's no relevance, uh, that God has no relevance and, and God is nothing to them, of no importance in their day-to-day -day existence. And suddenly, in this moment, they have nothing to connect to. They have nothing to hold on to. They have nothing that brings them calm. And so a crisis of faith feeds into a crisis of humanity, into the panic that is happening. It is our connectedness with God that enables us to choose to be calm. Enables us to be calm. Some years ago, I had a, uh, a lump in my throat. It was a lump that grew really rapidly. Um, the doctors didn't know what it was. Um, it was probably growing too quick to be cancer, but they couldn't be sure. But what they were sure of was that it was dangerously close to all the pipes and the veins and the whatever else is, uh, is in the neck. And especially it was close to my voice. And so the surgery to take it out was going to hold a significant risk. And um, in my mind, you know, you can, you can minister almost with, uh, you can minister with almost any disability except if you haven't got a voice. 
And that was the danger of, of what I was facing. And I was really panicked about it. I was worried. Um, I <laughs> developed this irrational fear of, of dying in the surgery. I thought to myself, what if the nurse stands behind the surgeon and goes, boo! And uh, he gets a fright with his scalpel and, and nicks something important inside there. What would happen to me then? What would happen to the family? We live in a house supplied by the church. What happens if you can't minister? And then before we went into the hospital, Debbie sat down and we prayed together. <clears throat> and it wasn't even, it wasn't any earth-shattering prayers. There was no angel saying, oh, you'll be right, mate, don't worry about it. There was no scripture that came booming to me saying, thy voiceth will be okayeth after the surgeryeth. It wasn't like that at all. But it was just an honest prayer of saying, God, I am scared. And it was connecting. And somehow there was enough. I knew all the dangers were there, the same dangers that I had thought before, maybe not the nurse saying boo behind the surgeon, but all the other dangers were there. I never once lost sight of the fact that this whole ordeal could go pear-shaped pretty quickly. But somehow there was calm, knowing even then that whatever happened, God would be there. My brother, my younger brother, came to visit me as I was getting changed into one of those awful hospital gowns that are open and airy at the back. And, uh, well, that scarred him for life, and he needed significant prayer and healing after that. But uh, once I'd gotten into bed, we, we sat and we, we chatted for a while. And, and then he, he left and went down to the cafeteria to go find a Debbie and, and grab a coffee while I was getting prepared for theater. And when Debbie said to him, so how did, you, how did you find him? How is he? And he said to her, you know, it's the weirdest thing. I think he's doing better than me. Now, I wish I always got it right. I don't. I really, really don't. But I have been struck this Easter in the context of what we are living through. Just how in the midst of the greatest crisis of all on that Good Friday, Jesus chooses to be calm. And he chooses to care. There's this connectedness. There's this calm. And he chooses to care. It's the very words of Jesus in crisis are always caring. It flows out from him. Think about it. He's the one that's in the crisis, but he cares for the servant and he heals his ear. On the cross, he looks down and sees his mother in her anguish. And he says to John standing next to her, have a look at this is now your mother. Would you please take care of her? Then there's the thief on the cross who defends him and says, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says in this caring, loving way, today, you will be with me in paradise. Today I will take care of you. Today you will know the depth of my love. And then especially when the soldiers mock and taunt him. With all the love and care in the world, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's not just care. It's ultimate care. John chapter 15 says, Greater love has no one than this, and they lay down their life for their friend. And that's what ultimate love and care leads to, to sacrifice. To care for others is to let, uh, to let that run to the extent that their needs eclipse our own. Their needs are put before our own. And Jesus demonstrates this to us. I mean, in many ways, his death was inevitable. Not just because he, the price had to be paid for sin. I get that. But his death is inevitable because he came to show us ultimate love. He came to reveal the Father to us. And, and that would be a love that eventually reaches out its arms and says, how much do I love you? I love you this much. This whole life is given because of my love for you. The other day on the news, a 90-something-year-old lady passed away from the coronavirus. I'm not sure where it was. It was either New York or Italy or Spain, one of those places so, so devastatingly hit by, uh, um, by, by COVID-19. 
when she made the news, not because she was another death or another statistic, but she made the news because she refused a ventilator. Or maybe more specifically, not refused a ventilator, gave it up for someone else who was in greater need. In a place where doctors are, were having to choose who's going to live and who's going to die based on what they think the best survival rate is. This lady said to the doctor when he came along, he said, I have, she said, I have lived a long and fulfilled life. Give it to someone who still has lots of years to live. It's probably the most beautiful thing I've seen in this crisis. Greater love has no one than they lay down their life for another. So in the midst of this Good Friday, in remembering what took place at Calvary, like us in this moment, we see Jesus in the midst of his greatest crisis ever. And we learn so much from him. That we need to face crisis with a connectedness in honest and earnest and, and raw and open prayer to God. That that connectedness will enable us to choose to be, to be calm in this crisis. And that when we're calm, we can be caring. Real caring, sacrificial, loving care. But I guess the greatest thing of all that Jesus teaches us at Calvary today comes not from looking at how he handles the crisis, but how he has handled all crisis for all time and all in this one moment. Because as I said, we read this with the benefit of hindsight. We are not living in it physically, but we should be living in the victory spiritually. We cannot and dare not live in a sense of defeat. Even on Good Friday, because we know that the victory is there. We know that Sunday's coming. We know that the victory is done, that the crisis is handled, that it has ultimately been overcome and won by the, by the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. Evil can do its worst, and yet we will live. We will live in connectedness, not in defeat. We will live with care, not in panic. We will live with calm instead of fear because we know that the hope is true that Sunday is coming. We may be in the midst of the crisis of Good Friday, but Sunday's coming. There's a famous story. I'll close with this story. Famous story told by one of the greatest storytellers of all time, Tony Campolo. And uh, he's told the story many times. In fact, he says that he's made a living out of telling this one story. He goes to functions and speeches where he doesn't tell it. And they say, can you please tell us the story? It's that good. And it's a story called, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's a story of hope. It's a story of victory. It's a story that speaks to us in the middle of the crisis of Good Friday. And I wish with all my heart that I could get him to tell, uh, tell it to you because I could never do it justice in the way he tells a story. But I will leave a link in the comment section to a YouTube clip of him telling the story if you want to go and have a look at it a little bit later on. It's a very famous story. As I said, maybe you have heard it before. Maybe you've even been to one of his uh, um, engagements where he's told the story. Or maybe you're young enough that you haven't yet heard it. Either way, it's a story worth hearing on Good Friday. And the next best thing to having him tell it is to have me read it to you from, uh, from his own words. As I say, you may have heard it, but, but listen, it's worth hearing again. He says, I belong to a church that served mainly African Americans in West Philadelphia. I've been, to, I've been a member of that church for decades. For me, Mount Carmel Baptist Church is the closest thing to heaven, this side of the pearly gates. I preach to a lot of congregations, but I have to say no other group of people leaves me with excitement like the congregation of my home church. People in my congregation always let me know how well I'm doing, whether I am good or whether I am bad. They let me know how they feel about my message. 
one time when I was preaching, I just sensed that nothing was happening. There seemed to be no movement of the Spirit of God. And I was struggling, as you've undoubtedly seen ministers struggle. And I seemed to be getting nowhere. I had gotten about three quarters of the way through my sermon when some lady in the back row yelled, Help him, Jesus, help him! And that's all the evidence I needed that things were not going well that day. On the other hand, when the preacher is doing really well, in my church, they let him know that too. The deacons sit right under the pulpit. And whenever the preacher says something that's especially good, they cheer him on by yelling, preach it, brother, preach it. And I want to tell you when they do that to me, it makes me want to preach. The women in my church have a special way of responding when the preacher is doing well. They wave one hand in the air and they call out, well, well. And when they do that to me, Tony says, my hormones bubble. But that's not all. When I get going, when I really get going, the men in the congregation shout encouragement by saying, keep going, brother, keep going. And I've got to tell you, I don't get a lot of that from normal congregations. The normal reactions in my sermons are not keep going. Most people are yelling, stop, stop. One good Friday, there were seven of us preaching in my home church, back to back. When it was my turn to preach, I rolled into high gear. And I want to tell you I was good. The more I preached, the more people in the congregation encouraged me. And the more they encouraged me, the better I got. I got better and better and better. I got so good that I wanted to take notes on me. At the end of my message, the congregation broke loose. And I was thrilled to hear the hallelujahs that broke out in the congregation as I sat down. I sat next to my pastor and I looked at him with a smile. He reached down with his hand and he squeezed my knee and he said, You did all right, son. I turned to him and said, Pastor, are you going to be able to top that? And the old man smiled at me and he said, Son, you just sit back because this old man is going to do you in. I didn't figure that anybody could have done me in that day. I had been that good. But the old guy got up and for the next hour and a half, he did me in. And the interesting thing was that he did it with just one line. He preached one line over and over again, and it stood the crowd on its head. And that one line was this, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It might not sound much to you right now, it might not blow you away, but it would have if you had heard him do it. He started his sermon real softly by saying, It was Friday. It was Friday and my Jesus was dead on the tree, but that was Friday. Sunday's coming. One of the deacons yelled, Preach it, brother. And that was all the encouragement that he needed. He took off. He came on louder and as he said, It was Friday that Mary was crying her eyes out. The disciples were running in every direction. But that was Friday. Sunday's coming. People in the congregation were beginning to pick up on the message. Women were waving their hands in the air and calling softly, well, well. And some of the men were yelling, keep going, keep going. And so he kept going. And he picked up the volume even a little bit more. And he said, it was Friday that the cynics were saying, you can't change anything in this world. But those cynics didn't know that it was only Friday. Sunday's coming. It was Friday, and on that Friday, Pilate thought he had washed his hands of a whole lot of trouble. The Pharisees were strutting around laughing. They thought they were back in charge of things, but they didn't know that it was only Friday. Sunday's coming. He kept on working that one phrase for an hour and a half. Over and over, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And by the time he'd come to the end of his message, I was exhausted. He had everybody so on their feet that I didn't think any of us could have stood it any longer. And at the end of the message, he just yelled out at the top of his lungs, It's Friday! And all 500 of us in that church shouted back in unison, But Sunday's coming. And that is the good news. That is the word that the world is waiting to hear. That is what we have got to get out there and tell people when they are psychologically in trouble, depressed and hurting, we have to tell them that Sunday's coming. When they feel that they can never know love again, we've got to tell them Sunday's coming. 
when they have lost their belief in the miraculous so they no longer expect great things from God, we have to tell them Sunday is coming. We've got to go to a world that is living in fear of this virus in panic and tell them that it is only Friday. Sunday's coming. We need to go to those who have lost jobs and hope and face the darkness of Friday and tell them Sunday is coming. We have to see those walking around with a sense of anger and apprehension, tense at the crisis of faith that they are facing, angry at the situation, and say to them, It's only Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday is coming. We have a Savior who went through the crisis of Friday in order that we can live in the hope and the victory of Sunday. The only question is, friends, in which day do you want to live? In which day do you want to live? The crisis of Friday or the victory of Sunday? You ever wondered why the most cruel day in the life of Jesus is called good? Because it's only Friday. Sunday is coming. We may be in a crisis like we've never faced before. But we're in it at a time when we are reminded that Jesus faced a far greater crisis. With a connectedness and a calm and a care. And a victory that is once and for all. You want to know what I really hope my children will tell my grandchildren when they come home and ask what they remember about the great corona crisis of 2020? I hope they'll say this. I hope they'll say, we remember that the world was going crazy. We remember that people's health and the economies were going to pot and people were scared. We remember a time of great crisis. But we remember that the church and that the Christians all around us kept reminding us that it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. May God bless you. I'll see you on Sunday. It's coming. Let us pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and those whom we love this day and forevermore. Amen.